0: I'm going to preach on all three of the readings again, from 2 Samuel, from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and from the Gospel, chapter 6 of John's Gospel, where we have all of the bread of life passages in in that Gospel. Before I do, something emerged from the discussion group at 9 that that prompts me uh, to say this. For the last several years, the Episcopal Church has been using something called the Revised Common Lectionary. And the Revised Common Lectionary is an ecumenical lectionary because it's used by a number of denominations in this country. And so there's uh, some uh, convergence with regard to the biblical witness uh, being read in the liturgical churches. Even now, it was a little more so in, in the 1979 lectionary, but even now about 80% of the revised common lectionary is identical uh, to the Roman Catholic lectionary. So we're all reading the same, uh, certainly the same gospel on Sundays for the most part, which I think is an advance. Nonetheless, the revised common lectionary is slightly different because in the former lectionary, the Old Testament reading and the gospel always thematically connected. And sometimes in the RCL that is not always the case, or there's an alternative reading that does thematically connect, but it's not suggested for that particular year in the cycle, A, B, or C. So this time we read from Second Samuel, and we read also from John's gospel about the bread of life, Well, there's an alternative reading you can read on this Sunday from Exodus, which is about the manna in the wilderness, which is mentioned in the gospel reading that I just read to you. And what I'm going to say about John's gospel um, would clearly uh, connect thematically about uh, how people understood uh, what was being said in John's gospel because of the continuity of their great tradition in their sacred literature. Be that as it may... The reading in, from Second Samuel is a great reading, and we've been reading through Second Samuel, so we want to preserve the, the uh, connection and the continuity. Uh, if you came to church every Sunday and listened to the lectionary being read, you would understand the thematic connect. I'm saying this without prejudice, by the way. I just want you to know... <laughs> That that it would make more sense because I'm sure sometimes we come and listen (coughs) to something being read and thought, where did that come from? But if you had seen or or heard the readings from that same location coming for four or five weeks, you'd begin to see, oh, I see now how that connects and why that's that's an important thing. Today we have Nathan the prophet paying another visit to King David. And that visit is prefaced by, remember the story last week, uh, Uriah the Hittite was sent into the worst part of the battle by King David so that he would be killed and he would be able to have Uriah the Hittite's wife, Bathsheba. So the story opens with King David in his palace. Uh, Bathsheba does the uh, appropriate laments and mourning. And then she comes to David and, and becomes his wife and they have a baby. And so Nathan pays a call on David and he tells him a story about a poor man who had only one sheep, a little ewe, that became a family pet. And this rich, there was a rich man in the town who had a huge number of sheep and was visit, had a visitor and decided he wanted to entertain him and instead of using one of his own lambs he took the lamb from the poor man and slaughtered that lamb and ate it. And David was furious and said that man should be executed for that kind of behavior. And then we have one of the most famous lines in the whole of the Bible. You are the man. In the, in the Vulgate Bible, in the, in the uh, Latin Bible, it was ecce homo, behold the man. And he points to uh, King David. And King David repents for this action. And then in our liturgy, we read the psalm that is connected, Psalm 51, which is the great penitential psalm in the Psalter. And it affords the opportunity to say something about the processes of repentance and conversion which are extremely important in understanding this and were taken up by Christians later uh, in the Christian era why this is so important. What happens inside of us that produces conversion, produces a desire to turn away from the bad things that we've done and to a more godly life. So this portion of Psalm 51 gives us the processes of conversion. First of all, uh, a disturbing occurrence, some kind of uh, happening in one's life that that knocks us off our pins, that causes us now to do a serious reflection about our own personal history. In the recovery movement, they call this a fearless and searching moral inventory And to begin to think about what we have done in our past life and to think about this history. And as this process is taking place, there becomes a realization of the forgiving power of God, but also preceding that is a feeling of the presence of God, God's forgiving power. And then the realization that it is possible to be transformed. In Hollywood, several decades ago, there was a movie about this. I think Victor Mature was David. And uh, when Nathan the prophet confronts him, he says Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not. Well, hardly appropriate in this particular case, I would think. Uh, Also in that movie, uh, the way the movie is written and designed, it's Bathsheba who seduces King David. So maybe there's been some progress. Who knows? In any case, he repents. Now here's the thing. This is a, a passage about what I talk about a lot. And that is when God's judgment collides with God's mercy. God's mercy trumps God's judgment. But when we say that, it does not mean that the consequences of our bad behavior are completely removed. And King David is now going to suffer As the result of his bad behavior because his kingdom will continue to be under threat and disarray and difficulty. And the solidification of his monarchy and all of these things are now going to be in jeopardy. This whole section of 2 Samuel is called the succession passages. And for Hebrew scholars represents some of the most beautiful Hebrew prose in the whole of the Old Testament. So clearly, it was carefully preserved and carefully written, and its purpose was to make people aware of this great lesson. It was also to say something about leadership and its importance. The biblical, in the biblical faith, no one, not even the king, is above the law. To act irresponsibly in society, especially against those who have less power, is to despise the word of the Lord. Election as king is a reason for punishment that involves accountability. So what we have, you know, sometimes you can read the Old Testament, certainly with Moses, uh, with, uh, with a view to seeing what kind of leadership are we talking about, and what is the best kind of leadership. And when we talk about that even in modern corporate life, how do we understand what the best leadership is? The best leadership in most instances is collaborative, mutually accountable, and servant-driven. Somebody said to me after the 9 o'clock, there's a new article in Wired magazine about Steve Jobs' leadership style. And you could read about, um, not unlike King David, it was a mixed bag, another example of how God uses imperfect people to achieve his purposes. In Ephesians today, we move from uh, a, a section in Ephesians which is all about doctrinal issues. And most of us Don't think very much about doctrines. Maybe you don't even like the idea that the church has doctrines. Maybe you just think this is a lot of fooling around with things that are uh, superfluous to our own contemporary uh, times. Diana Butler Bass, who is a, a darling of the Episcopal Church at this particular point, she has written a new book called Christianity After Religion. And in this book, she is doing an exhaustive survey of uh, religious life in the United States. But she has a paragraph or two in the book about doctrine. And she says, you know, the original meaning of the word doctrine in the original languages was a healing teaching. A healing teaching. And where she's going with this is to say, we've spent a lot of time in the life of the church focusing on doctrines that may not fit that bill and that there are a number of doctrines that have always been part of the great tradition with a capital T that do and the time may have come for us to talk about those doctrines which have something to do with what is being talked about in Ephesians today that there is unity in diversity and that we are unified by the baptismal promises that we have made and that God needs each one of us to fulfill his purposes in the cosmos and further to the point that there are varieties of gifts but the same spirit. When you go to the general convention of the Episcopal Church, um you really do see the diversity of the Episcopal Church far more than you usually do in an ordinary parish in the Episcopal Church. There are all kinds of people. And uh, you feel very proud in some ways to be an Episcopalian. And it's possible to suggest that the Episcopal Church is a family. And I mention this because I have a particular bias. I'm not... Big on people referring to their parish church as a family. You know? Well, you know, here we're a family. Families don't get along. So when there's conflict in parishes, which is, uh, you know, from time to time. And when people have different visions and different points of view, oh no, what are we going to do? We're supposed to be a family. You know? Just remember the annual knockdown and drag out, known as the family Thanksgiving dinner. You know that families don't always get along. And I'm okay with using the term family as long as everybody understands what it means when we use it in this context. And it's another example of how we can sentimentalize concepts like family, which produce no end of discontent and upset and anxiety and worry, when we'd be far better if we just accepted with some degree of clarity uh, what families really are and what family life is, at least in our own day and time. Uh, There are a lot of people who want to suggest to you in this country that family has always been a monochromatic expression in the creation of one thing, you know. Just remember the story of Jesus in the temple with all the scribes, Mary and Joseph and the family are going back towards Nazareth. They're out three days and somebody looks around and says, where's Jesus If that happened today, Child Protective Services would be called. (laughs) We would have arrests. We'd have a lot of stuff going on there. Right? But that's family in Nazareth, circa 4 AD. So Paul is speaking about here That we have unity and diversity, that each one of us is important, and that we have gifts necessary to the building up of the body. And when we use that term, body of Christ, we certainly mean it in the sense of the community of faith called the church, but we also mean the gifts that we offer to the wider world that seek to bring the kind of unity and healing power that Christian people are able to um, amass when they're focused So Ephesians is important from that standpoint. In in, uh, the gospel for today, it comes off of the feeding of the 5,000. You know, John's gospel uh, never really talks explicitly about the Eucharist. It never really talks explicitly about baptism. And yet almost the whole of that gospel is shot through with baptismal and Eucharistic imagery. Certainly the feeding of the 5,000 is an example of that. And today when Jesus speaks about that he is the bread of life, and that the way we come to access that in terms of our Christian duty and responsibility and our vocation in to be God's people in the world, it has something to do with accepting the example that he has set for us. In this man's words and in this man's works, we have seen words and works indistinguishable from the words and works of God. And more to the point, it's not the mere witness of a tableau, but somebody who provided for them the information that they can do this same stuff and that they can be like him. And here are the tools you can use. Now the process involves something that comes later in the gospel. At the end, in fact, when Jesus has risen from the dead and he comes into the room when Thomas the apostle is there who has told prior to his entrance that he's not going to believe that Jesus rose from the dead unless he sees him and unless he can put his hands in his scars. So Jesus appears and Thomas does just that. And he acknowledges that Jesus has risen. And Jesus' comment to him is, do you believe because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have come to believe and have not seen. And so in the gospel for today, we have a teaching about the Eucharist as the bread of life, the latest gospel in all four of the gospels, beginning to speak now of the ordinary and commonplace life of the people of God as they live and seek to be faithful and understand the power of being fed by that spiritual food and drink that we call the Eucharist. And so every time we come to receive Holy Communion, it is a real encounter with the risen Christ. It is a sacrament. It is a holy thing. So this week, give thanks for the fact that when God's judgment and God's mercy collide, God's mercy trumps God's judgment. But also remember that sometimes you are not um, free from the consequences of your bad behavior. And they need to serve as a, a um, help to you to move in a direction of greater health and wholeness. Give thanks for the fact that you are needed in big and small ways for God's purposes, no matter what time of life you are or what you do you are necessary and unconditionally loved, accepted, and forgiven by God and directed towards living a life congruent with his purposes. And finally, give thanks for the spiritual food and drink which we're about ready to receive, which it contains, each time we receive it, the healing power of God. Amen.